Welcome to Stories That Stick, a podcast series about the stories that shape us. So death is not finite, it's not something that happens at the end of our lives, but actually every moment that passes is lost to death because it's already passed. Hey guys, it's Ade here, your host for Stories That Stick. Now, in today's episode, we have David Aleku, who was a fintech lawyer, but he deals predominantly in strategies marketing for startups. But he is also the founder of Baba Flight Club and his new venture, which is Democratic Republic for Coffee, which we get into. If you are brand new to this podcast, we often start all our conversations talking about death. So if this is triggering for you, then please do skip ahead roughly two minutes or when you hear the page turning sound effect so get comfortable sit back and hope you enjoy this episode hey david hey thanks for having me on hey well first i haven't even said welcome but i'm glad you said thanks (laughs) how am i saying your surname eleku i mean i would say eleku Okay, how do your parents say it then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think they generally say it similarly. Um, so Eliku or Eliku. Where's that from? Uh, so I'm Ibo. So I'm from Asaba State. I see, I see. So I normally start the conversation talking about death. Okay. <laughs> Always? Is that like every conversation? Every conversation. Wow, okay. So how do you feel about death as a topic? Um, in terms of my thinking about death, I think I'd probably been quite desensitized very early on because we had a really old car at the time which used to set on fire. One time specifically where we were driving and then cars ahead of us just started like swerving. It was only when we stopped, the flame just wrapped around the car like suddenly, boom. And my door had a child lock on as well. I had to like be dragged out of the other side of the car. I don't know. So you have lots of these little things that life can end at any time. It's not really some far away imaginary thing. Like it's it's very real. And you have no control over when death comes. But a really good quote that I... Um, well, there's two quotes. So one that just came to mind by Arnold Bennett is, you know, we have and have always had all the time that there is. Um, And that's from a book he wrote called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day. And then the quote from Seneca is something along the lines of, every moment that passes is lost to death. It's a paradigm shift in that it phrases it that death is a continuous process. So death is not finite. It's not something that happens at the end of our lives. But actually, every moment that passes is lost to death because it's already died. It's already passed. Mm. And so I want to live in a way that you know, every day I'm contributing to what I want my life to be. Let's go through your chapters to date to figure out how you are living and being very purposeful. Yeah, sure. So who was David during this decade? It's hard, actually, because it's not a question I get asked a lot. And... It's hard to cherry pick because you typically lean to just wanting to pick your best experiences. Yeah, don't do that. Be honest, because I think, as we know, our shadows is also part of our light and it's what makes us so the good and the bad. 
Mm. So don't hesitate to tell me what you recall in this decade. Okay, sure. So my first decade was largely in Nigeria. I mean, I was born in Ghana, actually, which is something that not a lot of people know. Um, but I was born in Accra. I grew up for the most part in Nigeria. And I grew up with really bad asthma. So I was always quite sick. I mean, most of my earliest memories are of just being sick, going back and forth to hospital, uh, my bum hurting because of all the injections I needed to get, things like that. So <laughs> um, it wasn't, that part wasn't a tremendous amount of fun. Um, my parents both did a mixture of kind of church work and charity work. And so that's kind of the environment that I grew up in very much oriented around church and all of those things. Right. Christianity. Yeah. Are there any stories that you're like, you know what? That was something that really made me reconsider life at that age, maybe. Um, there was a time where we had armed robbers. But we had lots of stuff like that. But I think this was very visceral because I was the one that inadvertently let them in. So I specifically remember I was watching I Believe I Can Fly and my parents were out at the time. And then there was a knock I went to the door. I don't know what the, the babysitter was doing. I think it was just some poor girl. There's no one home. Open the door. Yeah, I went to the door and there was this guy. Your daddy sent And us. he was basically saying that my dad sent him. And I just opened the door just immediately. The guys came in. There was probably about four guys. They all had these huge guns. They made us like kneel down on the floor. And despite being young, I think you're very aware that you know, this could be the end of your life, you know, having a gun to the back of your head. That's kind of it, really. Yeah. And with this robbery, they selected your home. Yes, yeah, so I think they thought that because my dad at the time, you know, was a pastor or preacher, that he would have money for a lot of, you know, pastors or preachers in Nigeria, particularly, especially if you preach that kind of prosperity gospel, a lot of the time they do have a lot of money. Um, mm. But I think because ours was very much rooted in more so community and charity type work, um, yeah, we just didn't really have much of anything at all. It was actually, in retrospect, kind of funny because they actually took almost nothing because we had almost nothing for them to take. Were you, and this is something I often do ask, your identity at the time, what was that looking like? Because... You're a black man in a black country. Yeah. So being black, quote unquote, and by that, I, when I say being black, I mean that from a Western context, a minority. You're not that. So what was your identity? Yeah, I guess identity wise, it definitely wouldn't have been about being black at the time. Um, it would more be, you know, your identity via religion. So as a Christian or your faith. But then also actually, my dad lived through part of the war in Biafra and so I guess there was that aspect of it so while it wasn't necessarily race there was kind of your tribe and where you fit in within the wider sense of Nigeria and then also when I came to the UK then it's also you know am I British am I Nigerian am I you know Biafran and trying to marry all of that together. And how did you? It was hard at first I think you end up just having to assimilate but then also you're trying to keep in touch with, you know, where you've come from and what you are. And then I think it's also the history aspect 
because that's part of what I was saying as well. Because then when you look into the war and the role that Britain played in that war, that has a huge impact. Do me a favor, give us context. Because I know of it, but I only know of it because I'm Nigerian. So okay, yeah, I would know of that. But for those listening, like, tell us about the Biafra War. Sure. So if that's okay. Yeah, no, no, of course. Um, in terms of what I was referring to as the role Britain played in the war, um, you know, Nigeria really is a colonial construct. It was something that was created, and groups, tribes, people from technically very different cultures were put together into one country. For example, Yoruba people. There are Yoruba people in countries that are outside of Nigeria because that is their ethnic group, not because it's their country. And in terms of the war, once you know we got our independence, you're now expecting people that have been grouped together by other groups of people to suddenly self-govern in a way that is cohesive and efficient. And it's next to impossible because a lot of the time these things happen instantly. You go from having no control to having complete control over something that wasn't even necessarily formed naturally. And so we had the war, there was a few coups which turned into a, a wider scale civil war. Britain was supporting largely, I guess, the incumbents at the time, which at one point was the Northerners, but then was mostly kind of Yoruba people or the other side. So I was on the Biafran side. So Britain would support them with arms and weapons and training in order to fund and support the troops and then they would drop like a few bags of rice on our side to quote-unquote give aid despite the fact that they were arming the other side of the war and obviously i don't want to you know turn this into any kind of no, no far from far from no, I, <laughs> I get that but i think it was just it's an interesting historical like reference the question that led to this was how you were shaping your cultural identity being black within a black country rather than being black within a white country and this is yeah. you prior to moving to the UK so what those conversations were like and whether or not you were seeing already what you potentially wanted to become during this decade I don't know that was where this conversation was trying to lead to Okay. I would say probably not at all. <laughs> I think it was such a huge shift coming to the UK. Um, and also just life, life is so different, especially what I would probably add to that is if you're not necessarily middle-class in Nigeria, because I think that's usually the case. You get a lot of people where they were already kind of at least familiar with some comfortabilities or things like that. Whereas, you know, I'd never had, we didn't even have a generator or anything. So if the lights, if Nepa came, if the lights went out, we'd have to just get candles out, maybe go up on the roof. It was just a very big culture shift coming to the UK. Interesting. Well, let's actually then get into your next chapter. Sure. Which is 11 to 20. So you're now officially in England. You'd be going through the education system, so secondary school, college, and potentially university. This is a tough decade. Let's not beat around the bush. So who was David during this decade? I would definitely say that I was a troublesome child, unfortunately. Um, and I, I'm very grateful to my parents for putting up with me because I was, yeah, just very silly. In what sense when you say that? So it was a few things. Firstly, we are going back to Nigeria very quickly. I am left-handed. That does not run 
in Nigeria anywhere, let alone in the schooling system. If you put up your hand to answer a question and it's your left hand, you will have to stand up and get beaten. And so mm. it made me a lot less proactive in terms of wanting to answer questions, wanting to put myself out there, wanting to be noticed or being visible, if that makes sense. Yes. And so I definitely remember that being, you know, a partial factor, even coming to the UK, where I wasn't necessarily keen to, you know, raise my hand for things or to get involved in things to that extent. Um, the other factor was actually also that I was at one point about two classes ahead of my age group at the time because my dad made me do so much work outside of school. So I remember before school, I'd have to, I'd wake up. I don't even know what time I wake up, but I just know that work starts at six o'clock. So my dad would have these studying books and I would just be grinding on those from, <laughs> from just be studying, studying, studying. So initially I was about two classes ahead, but then we moved around quite a bit. Yeah. And then when we moved, I'm not sure if the school year had finished, but basically I had to sit out the rest of that school year and then almost like wait a year to start the next year. And then when I did start, I was redoing the stuff that I literally just finished at the previous school. I just remember just being bored. Like I was just not <laughs> paying any attention <laughs> at all. And so when opportunities came that fueled that distraction, I was very much, you know, keen to run away with it. You, you ran away with it. I see that. Were you at this stage because now I'm assuming you're obviously in secondary school yeah were you starting to think about a potential career path to take I would say not at all and it's one of those funny things I don't know if that's just because of background and not necessarily being aware of the types of careers or opportunities that are out there and I do think that's part of it because it wasn't like my parents worked in any kind of corporate field um I remember it was only until I moved secondary schools largely due to misbehavior because I was on the verge of being kicked out. That's the the full story. Wait, so your parents <laughs> decided let's move so he doesn't get expelled. Yeah, I mean, they'd already set the date for the governor's meeting to make that decision. So it was like an imminent thing. Right, jump rather than be pushed. I understand. Yes, yeah. That. But it's the fact that your behavior directly influenced your your location from a family setting mm. that to me is very accommodating for nigerian parents to well, say the least yeah. it was just a mess and i i you keep, okay so we're gonna have to get into the <laughs> gritties david what was really going on that they decided you know what they yeah. was so problematic <laughs> let's get the governor because it's about time yeah yeah what was this what happened um i would say it really just died obviously you know very innocently it was mostly and, and to a large extent it was just troublemaking in class I was very much the kind of class clown type mm. character and so I would just make jokes at the expense of anyone and everyone and then also I guess not having a lot I remember the point at which I realized that it was even possible to not have something and then suddenly to have it because in my mind, especially coming from Nigeria and growing up with very religious parents, if you don't have something, you just don't have something. Right. And again, having come from another country, wanting to be popular, wanting to have friends. So you're kind of playing up to that and you're doing whatever it will take for people to respect you. So I had loads of fights. I see, I see. And at the time at which I was leaving, this is still when we had sats in year nine. So obviously when you're moving, you have to move to another school that is with the same board 
in terms of I can't remember what they're called, but Edexcel or whatever. Gotcha. Yeah, like AQA and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Long story short, the combination of finding another school that was on the same board and also another school that would accept me regardless of my performance in terms of my behavior, no school would take me, literally no school. So the options were we have to move house and move to another borough so that I can go to school somewhere else. Or what my dad ended up doing was taking a loan so that I could go to an international school where they didn't do sets. Interesting. So now you officially find yourself in this international school. Yeah. And they're not having your behavior. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, I was still acting out probably for the first like half a year, but I would definitely say that was the turning point because that's when I first started picking up different interests. I joined the debate team. We were doing like Cambridge debates. Um, and then from the debate team, we got invited to the model United Nations in The Hague. Well, I couldn't go. Any type of school trip that was not in the UK, I pretty much didn't go on. Um, yeah, it just meant that I got a lot more opportunities and a lot more exposure to other types of people. And so yeah. suddenly with my new friends, they have career aspirations. Ironically, what even made me start considering law was because this girl who was also on the debate team, that's what she wanted to do. So here we are now thinking about law because, well, there's a sweet one on your debate team and she's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Bridge that gap for me. Now this is your full focus. Okay, I'm going to go into law. Yeah. Which university? So I went to City, City University. Um, but I would also say that I remember arriving at university and feeling just hilariously underprepared because everyone else seemed to have it together. They all had an uncle that worked at some kind of law firm somewhere or, you know, just connections coming out of their ears. And I just had none of that. I literally just had my, you know, I'm going to do it <laughs> with, with barely any knowledge or research or anything. No, I hear that. I almost want to fast forward a bit in a sense that you've managed to secure yourself a, a job in a law firm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is now, what, 20 plus, right? Yes. Okay, David, now in 20 plus, take me through what's going on in this decade and then some. What I would say is it wasn't like direct from university. I did some other work, um, interned at Google. Um, then I went to Shanghai. I worked at a medium-sized law firm in Shanghai for a while, came back to the UK. Um, I got headhunted for a grad job, which was in consulting. And then from there is when I moved into law. And I've been, well, I was at the firm that I was at for about four and a half, almost five years. Amazing. How is then the other stuff that you do, how have they come in, into your life? So I think once you have that stable job, then I think that's what opened my mind up to be able to start looking and considering other things. Like what else would I like to do? How else would I like to spend my time? Yeah, because you did write a tweet and it was that your personal goal to help as many people as possible. And so how do you do that? How do I do that? Um, literally in any way possible. So one, internally, two of us starting the diversity network at the firm and doing a lot of CSR work outside of that. So I was doing pro bono for the prisoners advice service. I also worked with a charity called Breaking Barriers who did employability clinics. And in, in something that I tweeted recently, I was explaining that 
this does come from having that church upbringing so the first thing that I set aside is how much I'm going to give for the year and that doesn't include like random giving to charity or random stuff I have a set amount that I decide on that I'm going to give away every year interesting and you don't know where that finance is going to be given but you know you're going to give it away yes yeah so the privilege to say that because I think it was I believe it might be Rick Semler that says those who give only give because they take too much now I don't know if you share that sentiment but he's almost saying that you can only give from a full cup I wouldn't say you can only give from a full cup but I would say I agree with his initial sentiment because I have taken a lot I've taken a lot of opportunities which are not given to everyone and that's the whole point Mm. there's a lot of things people don't consider and maybe I think this is part of the thread that you were referring to I was also saying that, you know, the privilege that we have is not just limited to money. You know, I grew up in a, in a two-parent home with parents who were incredibly supportive and loving and really did their best to support me, even despite all of my flaws and inadequacies. And I had a dad who had a good credit record who was able to borrow money where necessary to help me do different things. For example, when I went to school... I was doing um, some statistics thing. They said everyone needed to have this special calculator. We didn't necessarily have money just to go out and buy this calculator, but my dad got a loan to get the calculator so that I could use it. Also, when I was going to work in Shanghai, I didn't ask my parents for any money, but I said, this is what I wanted to do. And my dad gave me 300 pounds, which is huge for me because I wasn't expecting that. Mm. And so I've been tremendously blessed to have that support structure in terms of at home, but also in terms of the people that I've met, the friends that I've had that have supported me. And so maybe you're right, because I have had a full cup. The only reason I disagreed was to say that I think some people also have the perception that you need to have a full cup in order to give. And I think I get that a lot. There's a lot of people that you see that feel like, oh, you know, when I reach this point, that's when I can give. I disagree. 100% because I think and I believe it is Seneca that also says this for the man where enough is too little nothing's ever good enough if that makes sense yeah so if you always assuming that you need to be full it's never going to be complete because actually where you are should be full enough yeah I definitely agree with that good enough at the very least so you are still a lawyer is that right insane well I'm currently you know transitioning towards other my other skills yeah other ventures and those are so partly i work with startups i generally consult on brand strategy growth strategy marketing falls under that and also you know supporting with some some legal elements and then also running my two businesses one which was babas flight club which obviously due to the COVID is on hold, but we're working on ways to pivot and continue with that. And then also... Do you want to speak about Flight Baba's Flight Club? Sure. So with Baba's Flight Club, also known as Sky Tribe. Nice. Yes. <laughs> so it's, it's funny because I started it because, I mean, I enjoyed traveling. I wanted to travel and couldn't find anyone to travel with. And so, well, eventually I just decided to start traveling by myself. And then it's funny because this is how things come full circle because other people see you having fun by yourself and then they decide that now they want to be involved. So mm. that's when people would ask me to help with organizing group trips. So I started doing that and then that turned into like a full business. So essentially we run group trips to locations around the world and we've been to 14 countries so far, which is awesome. 
I'm definitely getting that picture of you insofar as like what you want. You really do go for it. And it seems like you do get it because if no one was going to travel with, I don't know, other individuals, they might not bother. But you're like, oh, no one wants to travel with me. I can do it. I'll just travel. Mm. So there's something to be said about your your focus and determination, which lends itself naturally for entrepreneurship and starting businesses. Hence, you then help with brand strategy, marketing, a bit of legals for startup communities. And then now you've got a new venture, Democratic Republic of Coffee. Do you want to tell us about that? Sure. So in terms of how it came about, I love coffee. I always have, especially working in law, you drink copious amounts of it. (laughs) And there was one time I tried this thing where you could make your own roast. But when I was picking, obviously I was only picking African coffees Um, and it was amazing. And so from that, I thought, you know, let me look for more. And I realized that actually you don't have that much access to African coffees here at all. You don't really get, you know, Congolese coffee, Ugandan coffee, Tanzanian coffee, Cameroonian coffee, all of that here. And so that's something that I wanted to fix. Along the way, I think I also became very aware of the colonial history of coffee in Africa and how some coffee producing countries in Africa, coffee isn't even native to that country. It was brought there during colonial times because some of the colonizers enjoyed coffee in the other countries they owned and were like, oh, it would be great to have that in my holiday home, you know, in Rwanda or wherever else. And so they imported that coffee and basically made people start growing it. And now that is one of their biggest agricultural exports. But for some reason, we've also decided that we prefer other types of coffee or we just don't invest enough. You know, we don't support the farmers in those countries at all. And so I think it's just the fact that there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. And I really wanted to do what I can to fix that. I assume when we are purchasing these beans, what is yeah. coffee, shall I say, what's the social arm here? It's a mix of things. One is that we're working through direct trade relationships, which means that basically farmers know that they can always get under a fair trade agreement, a fixed amount for their crop. Mm-hmm. However, the issue is that that amount is always fixed. No matter how good the crop is, No matter if they decide to invest in improving the facilities that they have, they're not going to get any more for that. What ends up happening is that because they get a fixed price, when they do produce premium crop, the exporters sell that crop at a premium rate. So basically the profit is made by exporters and by the companies that end up taking it rather than by the farmers. The farmers get nothing additional for that. So I guess it's partly built into the structure in terms of what the the social aspect is, is literally the fact that all of the profits from the fact that these beans are more premium and they are, you know, better crop, that is being passed on to the farmers directly, contractually. Um, But then also beyond that, um, something I wanted to do is working a lot with African creatives across the continent. And so, for example, our label design is being done by creatives in South Africa, Photography is being done by photographers in Ghana and we're working with creatives in Malawi. We're working with creatives in other countries. So I want the entirety of the brand to be a cohesive collaborative effort where we can economically provide for and incentivize, you know, business people because they're all business people. And I don't want it to be just a charity thing. I don't want to just give people shoes because those shoes you wear them today, that's not feeding your family tomorrow. 
No, I hear that entirely, man. David, honestly, you're doing it. You're doing it. You're doing it. <laughs> not even just for local community in London or the UK, but also on the continent. Um, I do want to wrap up. Sure. But before I do go, whatever happened to that sweet one that <laughs> made you go into law? Uh, well, I mean, we're still friends, actually, which is good. Yeah. Let's wrap this up. And the way I normally end is by asking my guest, if there's one book that you can gift to just others, what book would it be and why? Um, let me think for a second. A book I could gift? Yeah, to others. Really hard. I'm trying to think of a book that the value of giving it would be maximized, like you're going to get the most out of reading this book. I want to say Young Babylon because I think it's severely slept on. It's not a book people would know lots about. The way I would describe it, it's a bit like a Chinese Holden Caulfield, if you've read The Catcher in the Rye. And it's funny because I think that's the part that people don't get. So the main characters are very kind of deadpan, pessimistic, often narcissistic type character. And I don't think people get that part. I think people just assume he's meant to be a normal person. But if you've read The Catcher in the Rye, just expect a very similar character, but in an environment that you're not familiar with. Mm, interesting. Well, amazing. So how can we find you on the World Wide Web? And when, not if, but when we do, what would you like us to do? So you can find me on Twitter at Legend of Baba and on Instagram at Just Call Me Baba. And obviously what I want you to do is follow, follow those pages, but also you should go to demrepcoffee.com and buy some coffee and support the amazing work of farmers and creatives across the continent. And guys, as you know, we will put all of that on the show notes, wherever you guys are listening to this podcast. And for our sake, please do share, do comment, do rate, because it really does help us grow and definitely subscribe so you can hear when we upload the next episode. Until then, guys, do take care. Bye. Hey, guys, if you enjoyed today's episode, please do share it. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, please do get in touch.